Hi, welcome to the podcast of our Wednesday night study here at First Baptist Church to Queen as we go through the book of Revelation. My name is Dr. Josh Herwick, and I'm the pastor here at First Baptist to Queen. Over the next few months, we'll be looking verse by verse through the book of Revelation. If you have any questions or comments, please contact us here at First Baptist Church to Queen at dequeen.church. That's our website. And there at our website, you can find all the information you need to get in contact with us. We can't wait to hear from you. And feel free to drop a like or a share of this podcast if you find any of the information here uh, helpful. So let's dive right into the teaching. Last week, we took a look at Revelation chapter 1 and the beginning of Revelation chapter 2. We saw in Revelation chapter 1 uh, the, the Apostle John, who is exiled on the island of Patmos, and he receives a vision of Jesus. And Jesus then proceeds to tell John some information that he wants John to write down, particularly, first off, uh, some specific uh, notes and encouragement and challenges to seven individual churches. And we took a look last week at one of those churches, the, the church in the city of Ephesus. And today we're going to pick right up in Revelation chapter 2, verse uh, 8, as Jesus speaks to the church in a city called Smyrna. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Right there at the beginning of the verse, uh, verse 8, and when Jesus begins to speak to the Christians in Smyrna, he restates some of his credentials, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life uh, that were mentioned uh, earlier. These people, they're undergoing great troubles as well as um, having to endure immense poverty, though Christ serves quickly to remind them of their spiritual riches. The troubles that they are going through mean a, a serious burden on them that crushes. And he also assures them that he knows of their persecution, physical and spiritual, that they are facing from those being used by Satan. And he says, Jesus says there in verse 9, I know of your tribulation, I know of your poverty, I know of the slander of those that are saying they are Jews, but they are not. They're actually of the synagogue of Satan. Uh, when he says slander there, uh, that word slander uh, in the Greek is uh, a word we get our word blasphemy from. Uh, it literally means to speak against someone in such a way so as to harm or, or injure uh, his or her reputation. And so the slander of the people who call themselves followers of God, these people are actually followers of Satan. They're being used by Satan to instigate all of these problems. Uh, and Jesus wants specifically, he, he's drawing the attention of the people undergoing this trouble and this persecution. He's drawing the attention on, in truth, the originator of the problems, even though it's uh, physical human beings causing this problem, these people are being used by the enemy. And so he wants to help the people focus on who the true enemy is. The people being used need redemption, need grace, need Jesus. And it's the enemy who is trying to strategize and um, instigate problems in and among the church. And so Jesus is, is, is telling these people, 
even though you're being slandered by all this, they uh, who are making themselves followers of, of Satan, synagogue of Satan. This is an extremely strong way to say this, um, that he is the true enemy. And so Jesus is, is, is saying that these people who are a part of your church uh, may not even realize it, but they are worshiping at the feet of Satan instead of Jesus. In verse 10, Jesus says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And so Christ here gives those of Smyrna an immediate prophecy. Prior to the one they're about to receive in in the rest of this book of prophecy, Jesus emphasizes to the people that the trouble that they are about to suffer is originally the handiwork of the devil. Though others may be the hands that cast them into prison, Satan is the architect of the entire project. And Jesus gives him a glimpse saying, it's, something's about to happen. You're about to be thrown in prison. It kind of begs the question, is, does knowing the specifics about an impending problem make it easier to face? Well, yes, in a sense, because you know something's coming. No, in a sense, that it may produce more anxiety in what is coming. But Jesus gives them this glimpse, this prophecy, for the express purpose of encouraging them to persevere. To persevere, he says, they're even un to death. And then once that does come, you will receive eternal life. And he mentions there specifically 10 days. 10 days. And it may be 10 literal days, day and night, 24-hour periods. Uh, or it could be figurative, as many of you know dates in this book uh, may happen to be. But we don't really know. That's not even really the issue. Here, the issue at stake in this moment and what Jesus is saying, and you were going to be in prison for 10 days, uh, is about overcoming and is about having perseverance even to death uh, and then receiving uh, life after death. The faithful will receive eternal life. Verse 12 and 13, the next city. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And so we see here, Satan is dwelling in this place, and he mentions it twice. Uh, he says, Satan dwells there, and then he says it again at the end, Satan dwells there. Um, and I think that is directly related to how he describes himself in verse 12. The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Again, like all the other instances where he's writing to these church, he gives him, uh, he restates some of his credentials, or restates who he is. He has a sharp two-edged sword. The sword is powerful. The sword is, is a protection for those who are with him. Uh, and we, we know from history, Pergamum, uh, was a city, was a Roman town where the proconsul lived. Uh, he's a government official, uh, fairly high up in the government for this particular region. Um, and he lived there. And it's significant, Jesus is pointing out that he, Jesus, has more power than even the Roman proconsul. 
or really than anything or anyone who would come in opposition to the church there in Pergamum, even Satan himself. And so Jesus says, Satan has a throne in your hometown and Satan's throne is there. Verse 13 in Pergamum. It's what he's saying that he set up shop uh, there. Kind of his, he's, it's implying to be Satan's chief base of operations, uh, that it's a, it's a difficult place to live. And yet, even in the midst of this seemingly insurmountable opposition, the people, the Christians, are remaining faithful. And he talks about Antipas, who was a believer, who was martyred. Tradition holds that he was arrested and he was shoved inside of a brass idol in the shape of a bull. And then a fire was set and he was roasted inside this brass, brass bull. And so even when all this crazy persecution is going on, the people remain faithful. Even while faithful members of their church are being drug out in the street and, and killed in such terrible fashion, the people are faithful. Look at verse 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So the church as a whole, as we saw in the previous verses, held to Jesus, but there are some in the church who hold to other things as well. We have some people there who Jesus says hold to the teachings of Balaam. Now, Balaam was a prophet from the Jewish scriptures, uh, in this particular instance from Numbers 31, um, who had been hired to curse God's people. But God prevented him from doing that. And so what he did instead is he, invi- he advised the king of Moab uh, that God's protection would leave the Israelites if the nation of Moab could send spies in and get the Israelites to worship idols instead of God. And then God would, would his protection would leave and Moab would be able then to conquer Israel, would cripple them. Um, and so what he did, Balaam, is he intentionally tried to lead the Israelites into sin by eating idol food. And eating idol food was a form of idol worship. And so it would seem by people following the teaching of Balaam is they are creating a stumbling block in the church, getting drawing them away from God's purposes, from, from what God has for them. And then other people in the church are tolerating this mess. And, and toleration of seemingly small issues really crack the foundation of faith God wants to use to usher the church to great strength. This church had people who were undermining God's purposes. And then he says there uh, in that verse, verse 15, there were also some people there who had fallen in with the Nicolaitans. And again, we don't really know much about the Nicolaitans um, other than they, they did not follow the things of God and tried to get people away from the things of God. So while the church as a whole held to Jesus, they were tolerating people who held to some other teachings as well. Look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, okay. 
Okay. Verse 16. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So he starts off and say, repent, repent from that type of life. Repent from tolerating people who are, are undermining God's purposes. And repentance is, is more than merely turning away from sin. It's also taking intentional action steps in the opposite direction. Jesus says that without repentance, he himself will come to the church and make war against the unrepentant ones with the sword meant for his enemies. And so there will be punishment. There will be judgment. There will be, be damage done because people are in the midst of God's church seemingly seeking to destroy it from the inside out. And Jesus wants his church to accomplish his purpose, and he wants to protect his church. And so he's going to come and take care of business. And those who have faith until the end, those who conquered, conquering victory is a common theme in John's writings. But these are the words of Jesus here. To the one who conquers, to the one who is victorious, that is, that is, we are with the conqueror, we are with the victorious one, Jesus. And so because we're with him, we also conquer because he is the one who is conquering and we're following after him. It simply means those who, who are uh, in the faith, those who believe in Jesus. Um, and so they will receive, he says, the hidden manna. Now, the hidden manna could very well be the bread of life, the bread of heaven that was talked about in John chapter 6, verses 48 through 51, uh, meaning specifically Jesus, receiving Jesus, receiving eternal life. And they will also receive this other thing, a, a white stone. Now, specifically, we don't know the meaning of this stone beyond it's an assurance of blessing, but it talks about there's a name written on that stone. And in that day and age, a name represented the individual person. It summed up that person's very nature, what his character was. And this new name was a secret about the person between himself or herself and God. And why, though, is a new name uh, all that important? Well, this particular name uh, is only known by God. And is, it is God telling us that he knows confidently things about who we are that no one else knows. And the thing is, those things are good things. Typically, when, when we feel like we hear about somebody knowing things about us that nobody else knows, our mind instantly goes to bad things. Well, they know bad things about us that nobody else knows, but that's not the case here. The th what's implied is that God knows things about us that are good that nobody else knows. And these things are so valued by him that he has renamed us, emphasizing these godly characteristics that only he can see. Look at verse 18. To the angel in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. 
Now, after he, he gives a description about himself, a reference back to his description um, in chapter 1, something there in verse 19 should sound familiar because some of those words are very similar to what he, Jesus, spoke to the church in Ephesus uh, at the beginning of this chapter. You see, back in verse 2, Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. And here he, he says something similar. I know your works. And he also says, I know your patient endurance. But he also says something else there. Um, he knows their love, faith, service. Uh, but back in, chapter, uh, back in uh, verse 4, at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 2, in speaking to Ephesus, Jesus said, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So the Christians in Ephesus walked away from the love they had at the beginning of their Christian faith. And now here, Jesus is commending the love of the Christians in Thyatira. So they have faith, service, love. But that love, Ephesus themselves, the Christians there, walked away from it, abandoned it. Uh, in addition, the church here in Thyatira, this, this church, have, they have progressed uh, in their faith. They have grown in their faith. They have become more faithful in their lives than they used to be. And yet, they still had an area they could improve upon. Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. Jesus said, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And so you look at this, you say, what in the world is going on here in Thyatira? You see, Jesus has something against all of them. Because I have this against you. You tolerate that woman. They tolerate an evil woman who is leading people into sexual immorality and idol worship. This woman refuses to repent and is content to continue on in her sin. She's a part of the church. She's a part of the church. She's a professing believer, and she has assumed the role of a teaching, preaching prophet and has garnered a following within the church because of what she's teaching. And Jesus calls her Jezebel. Now, Jezebel's probably not her real name. <laughs> uh, everybody knew who, who Jesus was talking about. It's probably not her real name because it's very unlikely that a Jewish couple was going to name their child Jezebel, just as unlikely as a Christian couple in today's time naming their child Judas. It's just not going to happen. That's the reputation behind uh, the most famous woman who had that name, just not a good person. Uh, and so everybody in the church hears Jesus calls this particular woman Jezebel, and they know who it is. Uh, and it's one of those open secrets that everyone knows, but no one is willing to point out how wrong it is. It reminds me of the, you know, the old story, Emperor's New Clothes, when that con man comes in and convinces the emperor he's making this, um, this elaborate um, uh, outfit for him, and in in actuality, it's there's nothing there. You know, he convinced him. It's it's, it's it, the clothes are so refined and so great that the emperor 
and other people can't see it. And you only can't see it if you are unrefined. And so he gives these invisible, quote unquote, invisible uh, clothes to the emperor. And only at the end of the story does that little kid call out and say, hey, he's not wearing anything. The little kid was the only one willing to state the truth and, and call out the situation as it was. It was an open secret, but no one was willing to say it because they didn't want to acknowledge uh, what was happening. And so that's what's happening here in, in this city is no one is willing to acknowledge, to call out the truth of the situation. This woman is leading people away from Jesus. And so Jesus straight on the scene, calls a spade a spade and says, this is bad. This is evil. And Jesus has given this woman an extended amount of time to turn away from her life choices. And it says she refuses to repent. That word there in the Greek is in the present tense, which means that she was continuing this action. It wasn't just a one-time decision. It was a continued action. She was continuing to express an emphatic desire to not repent. Have you ever known anybody who continually refuses to stop doing something destructive? I mean, in all honesty, we probably have done that ourselves at times, uh, whether it's something minor like like eating a kind of food that we know is bad for us, but we do it anyway, to something drastically destructive uh, in the nature of, of a lifestyle habit, a lifestyle choice um, that ha- has become a part of who we are. And so Jesus has given this woman repeated opportunities to repent, and she won't do it. And so he says, okay, well, this is what's going to happen then. Verse 22, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." Now, it sounds pretty harsh what Jesus is saying here, but let's look at it. He says that this woman who has drugged people to defile the marriage bed will now herself be thrown onto a bed of suffering. And it would seem as though just as her name itself is symbolic, some of the language here is also symbolic because of something he says towards the end of what we just read. First, Jesus is going to make her greatly sick. She's going to be very ill. And then he will give those who commit adultery with her, both spiritual adultery and physical adultery, he will give those people great trouble unless they also repent of her sinfulness. And then he will bring to death, it says, her children. Now, her children, what does that specifically mean? Well, at the end of uh, verse 23 there, he says, I will give to each of you according to your works. They will be punished because of what they have done. And the idea behind children here is uh, if this were literal children, the children would not yet be accountable for their actions. Um, they would not have knowingly uh, rejected Jesus and walked into sin. But on the contrary, if this is figurative... Uh, as some of the other language in this particular section of passage is, uh, then the ones being brought to death will be her disciples, her followers, her close followers of this woman, this Jezebel woman. They will be judged according to their works. Uh, And so literal children would not have works yet for which to be accountable, but people following this woman and doing what she has, um, her 
um, spiritual children uh, would be accountable, and because of that, will face judgment. Because not only is she refusing to repent, those following her are following her example and also refusing to repent. Look at verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. So he says, everybody else, all the other Christians in this church, you don't hold to this teaching. You don't follow this woman. You have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. You don't know it. You're not familiar with it because you've kept it at arm's length away from yourself. These things that she is doing, these teachings that she is expressing are the deep things of Satan. They go against specifically the purposes of God. And so then Jesus tells these people, I don't lay on you any other burden except this one. Hold fast to what you have until I come. These people, these believers, are supposed to hold to the strong Christian doctrine singularly. Sometimes we tend to hold to other opinions or political positions just as tightly as we do the teachings of Jesus. But if we choose to fight to the death on the hills of every opinion, we will not have the resolve or the strength of witness to stand firm extending grace to those dying and going to hell. Because if we choose to expend our opportunities on issues of no eternal significance, what uh, energy or, or strength of witness will we have when it comes to talking about the gospel? Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have solid convictions or opinions. It just means that the only thing worth not compromising on is the gospel. Verses 26 through 29. The one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Conquering and keeping my works to the end. This is in direct contrast to those who are keeping the works of the evil woman. These, this means um, those who have the faith, the true faith, the faith that will last the faith uh, in Jesus as the Son of God, dying and raising from the dead, receiving eternal life. Both of those, those phrases indicate a perseverance of faith, and that perseverance will guarantee participation in the final victory, the victory that comes from being a Christian. And those who participate in that victory are those who receive the morning star, which is a direct reference to Jesus himself as he is called the morning star again in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. So Jesus is speaking to these churches, and he's going to continue to speak to, to a couple more churches in uh, chapter 3. So thank you for joining us today uh, as we looked at some of the book of Revelation, and we're going to continue to do uh, throughout the coming uh, weeks. And please feel free to like this podcast and share this podcast if you found it uh, helpful to you. And join us again next week.